All right, let me introduce you to our guests for tonight and our guests in no particular order. Actually, it's just one guest for now who will be giving us some perspective on what we're talking about. We're speaking to Ashwin Trikamji, president of the Hindu Mahasabha, and usually we talk to him on matters pertaining to faith. But tonight, we are going to be talking to him pertaining to the history and the culture of the community of Indian people who are here in South Africa. Ashwin Trikamji, good evening to you once again. Thank you very much for agreeing to talk to us. Good evening to all your listeners. It's always a pleasure to be on your show. Same here, sir. Thank you very much. Let's begin first and foremost about the statistic that I quoted, the statistic of South Africa having the biggest number of Indian people of Indian descent outside India. Is it still true? Yeah, it, it, uh, I think it's now arguable because uh, there are some people who claim, and I don't think that they are <coughs> accurate figures that to, to justify it, that uh, there are more Indians in the United States now than outside India, than anywhere else in the world. And of course, against that, there's also a claim in the United Kingdom, the UK, that there are more Indians there as well. But in terms of factual figures up till now, it has always been in, uh, inarguably accepted that the largest concentration of Indians outside India is in fact in, in South Africa. All right. I want us to do a brief run-through of how they arrived here, and then perhaps we can pick in a few historical nuggets. Uh, as best as you can recall, as far as history is concerned, when did they get here? Well, it all happened uh, in the early 1850s when uh, the so-called white or colonial sugarcane farmers in, in, in the coast of uh, then known as Natal, the colony of Natal, were having problems in trying to get the sugarcane to grow, and they didn't have the expertise. And of course, uh, they they tried, 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 and there were all kinds of meetings held amongst themselves. And eventually, in 1860, they decided to, uh, as it were, import labor, and it was indentured labor uh, from India. And the first lot of Indians arrived in in South Africa. On the shores of South Africa in 1860, in, in, you know, as indentured to work specifically in the sugarcane fields and to grow sugar. Okay, and uh, if these people are, are people who were laborers, as it were, these were people who were not of a higher caste, as we know that there had been a history of a caste system in India. Can we conclude safely that these were people of a middle or lower caste? They were absolutely ordinary people working from the villages in India. Uh, they, you know, they just wanted to earn some money. Uh, that was the level at which they were. They were laborers and nothing more than that. And uh, <coughs> they then were <coughs> attracted to the offer of uh, exposing their labor in another country. So that is how they came here. Uh, this is how it happened. You know, initially the Indians, the Indian indentured laborers, came here, and that happened for a considerable period of time. And then slowly thereafter, you had the the uh, some somewhat Indian merchant class, as it were, the smaller numbers, of course, who also then followed. And that's how you had the so-called Indian businessmen emerging in South Africa. 
All right. particularly in KwaZulu-Natal. All right. Um, I want us to uh, unlock our calls now and have everyone joining the conversation. 0891 uh, We're taking your calls on 0891 If you're one of those people who have some information, you'd like to join the conversation, please feel free to call us right now. 0891 Joey, can we unlock those calls, please? That said, uh, let's let's get some an, an understanding of of of, of why um, why these people were given the information that they are going to be given uh, labor here in South Africa. Was it because there was no work for them in India? No, that wasn't the case. You know, there there is there is a there, there is a lot of uh, stories that emerge that some of them were basically misled when they were when they came out here. Uh, there's some stories that some of them were brought here by illicit means and they didn't even know what they were going for. And and in some instances, there's allegations that they were literally kidnapped or sold as slaves uh, when they when they came out here. Yeah. And, you know, when the, when the ship docked here, it was completely foreign to them. They didn't know where they were going. They didn't really know what they were what they were going to expect. And they ended up being uh, nothing more than slaves here, you know, although we call them indented labors, but effectively the kind of life that they were subjected to, it, it's uh, it's uh, tragic to say the least. All right. And there was no way of, of sending word back to India to say we were free men, now we're finding ourselves as slaves. Yeah, no, not at all. And the kind of life that they led, you know, they were put in, they were placed in barracks, uh, where they were given limited, uh, let's call it accommodation if you want to call it, uh, limited freedom, uh, no, no, no kind of recreation whatsoever. It, they were just slaves, nothing more than that. And there is, there are some horror stories that we, we, we you know, that have emerged as the history started to unfold itself in terms of what happened to the indentured laborers when they came here. Uh, it, it was it, for, for for one the just the the the, the ride as it were or, or, or the the transport from India to here in the ships uh, that in itself was an ordeal. All right. The ships were old; they were apparently leaky, utterly ill-equipped to transport people in such large numbers, and and the voyage was just something of a horror story for most of the people. And then, of course, the other, the other, the other factor is that they were packed, tightly packed in a paddle steamer. Yeah, you know, allotted a space of, say, uh, six feet, for by two per passenger. And once the deck was full, they had a platform that was raised on the side of the vessel. And of course, uh, the, all, all this kind of of uh, conditions led to diseases. Yeah. And deaths were frequently, frequently common on the ships. Um, first, I want to see if perhaps we could uh, corroborate a few of our uh, resources. Do you recognize the names of Ghulam Vahid? 
Yes, go and on by the National Deaf Highway. That's right, that's they, right. They are, they are the really the experts. They've done a really in-depth research Indeed. Into, in, in, into the entire arrival of the Indian Lovely. and indentured labor. Good, yes. I'm, I'm happy because that's my resource for tonight, Insight Indian Indenture by both Gulam Vahed and Ashwin Desain. Thank you very much for corroborating that. And this begins, as it's titled Inside Indian Indenture, a South African story, 1860 to 1914. And uh, we'll be using that uh, for tonight. And perhaps if you have any other resources, you can share them with us. But that's what I have found to be very interesting of all the books that I've read on uh, Indian arrival, Indian history here in, in South Africa. Let's go to Mick in Durban. Mick wants to join in the conversation. Good evening, Mick. Mike. Mike. Hello. Hi, Mike. Hi, it's Mike from Durban. Okay, Mike. I grew up with the Indians, yeah, right from a little boy. Okay. Right. I used to live alongside the Ambilo River, and they stayed on the on the Rossborough side. There were a couple of houses there. And we used to all swim in the nude in the Ambilo River. <laughs> okay. At that time. Anyhow, uh, 1860 wasn't the first time Indians uh, were in Natal. Uh, when the Portuguese were wrecking their ships on the wild coast, walking up somewhere around about the Amtarumi area, they came across a young Indian guy and asked him what he's doing there. He said, he came off a shipwreck. They said, well, come with us. We're going to Lorenzo Marks, yeah? And he said, no, thank you. He had, he, he was holding the hands of a, a young African princess next to the hut. He was quite happy. He wasn't going. Anyhow, in the 1700s, up in St. Lucia, uh, a, uh, a guy from the Kwambanambi tribe, who was a blacksmith on an island in St. Lucia area, he found an Indian woman wandering around on the beach and he gave her shelter and eventually had children from her. Then in 1850, 1855, five Indian passengers on a ship got off in Durban. The one was Babu Nadu and the other one was Chitty. The other three can't trace their names. These guys opened shops on the corner of Field Street and West Street, on the opposite corners. <laughs> we have quite a few Nahadus and Setis in Durban now. I think there's about 13 and a half, the, the old telephone book, 13 and a half pages of Nahadus. Uh This is the N-A-I-D-O-O Nahadu. Uh, but alongside the, the railway line at, in the... Finland's area, the bluff, the Indians built houses alongside the railway line in the swamps, and they were actually growing, growing rice, vegetables, and rice there. We used to walk past there on our way fishing to go and buy shrimps from the Indians at the fishing village uh, next to the, the Finland's railway line. And then there were Indians living Mike? living on Salisbury Island. Mike, Mike, um, where, where, where are you getting all this information? It's very interesting. Eh? Nuggets of information dating back to the 1800s. Where did you get this information? Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, the first... The, the Mike, 
Mike, the first Mike, Mike, sorry, I didn't hear you. I was asking where you got the information you're sharing with us tonight. Hmm? Where did you get the information you're sharing with us tonight, I, Mike? I'm, I'm an amateur researcher. Okay, and where right. did you and source I'm, the information? I've actually got a, uh, a, a thesis that uh, someone did. A lot of this information is in the thesis. Okay, and who is that someone? Oh, it's a lady. I just can't remember her name. Ah. It's amongst all my books. My dining room looks like a library. Okay, okay, all and, right. And the and the and the reunion area where the Indians were growing, uh, where the British were growing sugarcane, reunion got its name from a box of sugar shoots that they found there. They found it to be very good sugarcane. And when they discovered it, it come from Reunion. They named that area Reunion. Okay, That's all right. It's the Itapingo Rail area. Okay, we'll have our guest, Ashwin Trikamji, tell us about that as much, much more. Thank you very much, Mike. Appreciate your call. All right, uh, see, uh, research is coming up and popping up. Really appreciate it. Please continue to call us on 0891-104-207. 0891-104-207. We'll have Ashwin Trikamji respond to this and perhaps give us some more information and we continue with our conversation. First, we'll go to a break. Call SAFM right now, now on 0891-104-207. Welcome back. You're still listening to The Headspace. Tonight we're doing I Am an African and we do have in our midst people of Indian descent who have now since the 1800s been here in Africa and we identify them as Africans as well. I'd like to hear from you on 0891-104-207-0891-104-207. I don't see my calls there, Joey. Can, Can you put them back on, please? All right, um, uh, our guest uh, for tonight is Ashwin Trikamji, president of the Hindu Mahasabha, talking to us about the history of the Hindu people, people of Indian descent who are here in South Africa. You heard Mike, our call, Ashwin. What do you think about yeah, what he's saying? I, I, I've never heard this before. Yeah. Uh, I'm very, very much surprised that Mike uh, claims that he's, uh, he's a researcher and he's a historian. Uh, the the whole the whole arrival of Indians in in in, in South Africa and in Natal particularly has been in the media for as long as one can remember, and we celebrated uh, in, uh, in in 2010 the 150th anniversary of the arrival of Indians. Uh, we had an organisation called the 1860 Legacy Foundation. Uh, which coordinated the celebrations throughout the country, and I was chairman of that particular foundation. And uh, I, I have never ever heard of anyone by the name of Mike come up and make contributions. Ashwin Desai and Gulam Bhai have traveled the length and breadth of South Africa and outside South Africa in gathering the, the, the information that is contained in the book that you just quoted. Yeah. And I am surprised that a man like Mike, who seems to seems to have some information or so much information, which would have added to that history, has never ever come forth either publicly or even in, even in the form of the media. I mean, letters to the editor is a very common occurrence in all over the world, and particularly in Kazarin. And we've never heard him come up and say, "Guys, it's not 1860. You're wrong." 
that's not quite accurate because this is the information I have and I'm prepared to share it with you. Yeah. There have been exhibitions that have, that were held in, in, in 2010. Uh, there were narratives that were gathered. There were people celebrating all, in all forms and, and all kinds of of uh, events that took place to celebrate the 150 years. And I don't ever recall anybody called Mike featuring anywhere there and making his little contribution to say, guys, this is the information that I have to contribute. Yeah, and he so says it's coming from I look, a I'm not going to say he's wrong. I yeah. can't because I don't have the evidence to say it's wrong, but I'd like to hear the evidence from him. Yeah, He yeah. says he's got it, but I'd like to see it. All right. All right. I, I, can, I can share this with you firstly, you know, in terms of history that I know. Yeah. The first two shiploads that came to South Africa, one was the ship was called the Truro, and the other one was called the Belvedere. And both of them left uh, the shores of, of India, one from Madras and the other one from Calcutta, in October 1860. And the very first ship that landed here on the shores of, of uh, Natal was in uh, on the 16th of November. You know, this year it's 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 uh, it's in just two two months away, and uh, and in that particular ship there were uh, 342 people that were on that ship, and Belvedere arrived uh, 10 days later, 26th of November, and uh, and and there uh, we had uh, we had uh, 250, I think it was 330. And I know that at least 29 or 30 people died on that particular ship. So that's the information that has never been challenged. It's confirmed. All the records show it. You know, there are historical documents that back it. We even know the different types of people that were there from the different religious groupings, Christian, Muslim, Hindu, you know, those are the three religious groupings yeah. that arrived here. So I don't know where Mike comes with his story, but I'd like to hear more about it from him. Perhaps um, if we can get him back on the line, um, um, we would like, because the, uh, these guys quote a Mike Davies um, um, uh, in, a, in a book t- called a Late Victorian Holocausts. Um, and, and, and perhaps it would be interesting to know if this Mike is the same Mike <laughs> that um, uh, uh, Ashwin Desai is quoting here. Um, uh, but we'll find out as, as soon as we get him back on the line. Uh, Mike? Can you hear me? Yes. Uh, what's your actually, surname, Mike? Is, is it Davis? Ashwin Desai lives quite close to me. He stays in the penthouse of a block of flats on the South Beach. Ho- hold on, Mike. What is your surname, Mike? Are you Davis? Uh, uh, Bloxham. Okay, you're not that B-L-O-X-H-A-M. Okay. Pronounced Bloxham, not Bloxham. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. All right, thank you, Mike. All right. I'm, I was I, asking I met because Ashwin in the book... I the library one day. He was researching cricket. Okay, okay. And, uh, and I said to him, I said, my friend, I've got a lot of info on the, on the, on the Indians before 18, 1860. And he said, and he was in a hell of, he said, I'm in a rush, and he rushed off. Okay, all right, all right, but thank I, you very much, if, Mike. If this gentleman that you're interviewing would like to phone me, uh, well, it would be nice if you it would be nice if you to share the source uh, with us. If you to remember the yeah, source, you can of, give me my number. No, no. Um, uh, for for everyone here who's listening, there, Mike, it would be nice for us to be able to read what you read, uh, not yeah. just uh, uh, our guest. All right. Thank you very I'm much. I'm an Mike. amateur researcher, by the way. Okay.
Okay, thank you. I researched the whole of Africa. Okay, okay. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Mike. Appreciate it. All right, I want to read an excerpt um, uh, from their very intro there in their book. And it was rather interesting for them to put it in that fashion because it puts a lot of things into perspective, which informs some of the questions that I start off with. It reads, in fact, it, uh, oh, those who agreed to indenture were often propelled by desperation as the British spread their tentacles throughout India. It is opposite, uh, it, it, it is a posit in these contemporary times in which the British Empire is dressed up once again as a benign, progressive, modernizing force as a cover for the civilizing mission in Iraq and elsewhere to uh, iterate as Mike Davis has done in late Victorian holocausts and this is what he quotes in that book if the history of British rule in India were to be condensed into a single fact it is this there was no increase in India's per capita income from 1757 to 1947. Indeed, in the last half of the 19th century, income probably declined by more than 50% from 1872 to 1921. The life expectancy of ordinary Indians fell by staggering 20%. Modernization and commercialization were accompanied by pauperization. It was the very same British Empire that brought misery and subjugation and ironically created an opportunity for escape to place places like Natal in South Africa. Full stop, close quote. Uh, it gives the impression that they were fleeing. There were migrants fleeing a situation that was dire and he calls it pauperization. Uh, what do you think of that? Ashwin? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, my, my reaction is yes, it is quite quite correct in some instances. But I think the core of of this whole uh, indigent labor is is what I, as I uh, as I stated when I start, start, started out this evening that the white colonial property or landowners here were wanting to plant sugarcane and they're having problems. And then there were negotiations with the Indian government, which went on uh, from from my my historical perspective that this didn't happen overnight. There were representations and there were negotiations and so on that went on for nearly five years before finally the green light was given for the importation of the indentured labor. So that's where it started. And as far as, like I said, in India, the people who were asked, who were brought out here, some of them were not even aware of it. And as Ashwin Desai and Gulam point out, this this goes back to the colonial the colonial influence in India as well of the British Empire. So that is how the 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 whole process uncovered itself in terms of the indentured laborers, as I keep referring to them, coming out here. Thereafter, there was a progress, and I think it's very important to just, just trace back history. Once these people came here and in the conditions in which they were, they were subjected to, is, I mean, it's, it's, there are some horror stories to say the least, but one of the, one of the issues that came up was on what basis did they come here? Yes, they came here as laborers, but then they had to apply to an immigration officer 
And, uh, you know, the word Kuli, that's where the word Kuli came about. We were so-called, we, these people were called Kulis, and, uh, and, and any, any, any person of, you know, a farmer or, or a property owner who was, uh, who was desirous of, of, uh, of, uh, employing these indentured laborers was uh, asked to make an application to, to, uh, to get uh, a clearance from the immigration so that he or she could then have coolie servants on their properties. And that is how the whole process un- unfolded. So there are some, actually there are some horror stories that, uh, that, that followed about how they were actually treated here, the kind of working conditions, and of course uh, the kind of, uh, uh, kind of uh, social life that they were subjected to. Yeah. There are stories of how the 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 masters, the 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 bosses, literally abused the wives of the laborers themselves. They were not allowed to live together. They were living in compounds, which were in those most horrific conditions. Before before, um, before we even go, talk about uh, the, the, their stay here, we're still trying to trace back how how they got here, uh, Ashwin. Mm. And that's what I want to read another excerpt that I also found very interesting, very eye-opening. He writes, or they both write, dreams of a better life and the opportunity to save money and return to the villages as success stories were not to be far more who returned home with less than they had started out with and who found that home was not the same place. Neither were they the same people. Caste had been transgressed, parents had died, and spaces for reintegration closed as colonialism tightened its grip. Home for these wandering exiles was no more. A substantial number came to the realization that the place of exile was the place of home, referring to South Africa. Like Majub, they wondered. Where do we go when it falls apart in our hands and we're left with less than we started off with? Begin again and with what? And so many made the return journey to Africa to begin anew. Close quote. Uh, again, this this situation that is painted by these two is a situation of dire straits to an extent that uh, it gives the impression that the, the original uh, sojourners to Africa, particularly here in South Africa, had no intentions of staying. They wanted to just make a little money and go back to India. But yeah, but when they get went back to India, India was no longer a home for them. It did not welcome them as uh, people who are uh, members of any caste, for that matter. And colonialism had shut them out, and they had very little to nothing uh, they left with in fact they say here they they returned to india with less than they went they left india with which made africa the only place to start up anew with absolutely nothing yeah i fully agree with that uh, you know that even even the indenture the indenture contract as it were expired those that came here for instance in 1866 their contracts expired in 1879, and they had to make the make the call to go back, either to go back because that was the end of their contract. Those that chose to extend their contract did so, but uh, the the ones that went back got what I think it was called a certificate of a discharge, uh, discharge to go back to India. But you the the the, the quotes that you've given is absolutely accurate. In, in its summation of exactly what happened, and that is true. 
So when, when we speak of, of, of people of Indian descent in South Africa, and it's a very interesting concept of still speaking of people of Indian descent or Indians in South Africa, and they've been here since the 1800s. Why then, if they did now identify Africa as their home, why do they still identify themselves as Indians? I, uh, you know, I, I can't fully agree with that. Uh, I think that that probably that was probably true with the older people, and I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about my forefathers and 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 and, and grandfathers and our great grandfathers and so on. They they obviously identified as you know most of them were born in India, or alternatively their first generations were also from India. But those of us who are here, third and fourth generation who are born in South Africa, we don't regard ourselves as uh, uh, Indians. We regard ourselves as South Africans. And um, and I, I certainly am, uh, am ex- absolutely proud to be a South African, not an Indian South African. I'm a South African. And yes, uh, the laws of this country called me an Indian because we are demarcated in apartheid times in different races. But if apartheid did not have those demarcations, then none of us would be calling ourselves Indians as well. We would just be South Africans. Yeah. All right. All right. And by the way, the lines are open. You're welcome to join in the conversation. 0891 We're having a conversation about the history of the Indian people who are living here in South Africa. And perhaps we should read, edit that and say people of Indian descent who are here in South Africa elsewhere. They're called British Indians and American Indians. I don't know what would call them now because after all, if you're listening quite well to Ashwin Trickamji, they're South Africans that even have those prefixes or suffixes of South African Indians or uh, Indians in South Africa, whatever you want to call them. They just call themselves now South African. Now, we're talking about a group of people who, when we saw uh, or when we see their participation in the South African political strata, having a varied political involvement. Some uh, today are seen to have been identifying themselves ever since then with the African National Congress and this is now dating back to when it all started in 1910, 1912, 1913. Uh, but then before then, uh, they were seen, they were seemingly apparently uh, segregated as, as a level above black people or people who are Africans and when you look at some of the writings especially the writings of uh, Mahatma Gandhi it would appear as though there had been still uh, a regard of people of Indian descent to be higher in stature than people of African descent your understanding of this matter yes well well, let's look at the contribution of of, uh the Indian community, as it were, to the struggle against struggles against apartheid in this country. Uh, even before before the involvement of the African National Congress, there was the Italian Congress, and that was formed way back in 1894. And uh, that was as a result of, of, to some extent, as a result of Gandhi's involvement in South Africa. But the most important thing is that the Natal Indian Congress and the people that formed the Natal Indian Congress were then were one of the most uh, one of the most active uh, participants in the struggle, uh, both uh, above ground and underground, uh, against the fight against apartheid. And the majority of them, of course, eventually found homes in the African National Congress. Uh, 
And if you look at the African National Congress and the number of Indians that were part of the struggle, you know, if you look at it proportionately, the Indian community has had a great history. And it's, and, and it's, it's quite an impacting history in their, in their fight to share the, 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 the vision that South Africa was for all of us. Okay, uh, but, uh, let me let me let me go back. You you gave an explanation of of of, of them called coolies. Can you say that again? Why were yeah, they called coolies? The word the word coolie was was coined then uh, when they came out here uh, as as servants, and that was a term that the colonials used for servants in India. Anybody who was a servant who was working around was called a coolie. So when they were when they arrived here. The, the colonials called them coolies and said, yeah, the coolies have arrived. Coolies in reference to being there, they're being servants. Uh, uh, the the etymology of the word coolie, I'm, I'm trying to understand how they came up with the word. Yeah, the word, the word is coolie came up, it, it was a reference to somebody who was a laborer. That is basically how it came about. I, I understand that was what it was referring to, but the, how was it coined? How was the word put together? Kuli, is it, is it coming out of something maybe uh, that would help us understand I, I, I'm the etymology of the word? <laughs> okay. All right, all right. Let's 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 go go into now the arrival of the Belvedere and the Truro. Um, uh, uh, this is what they are writing again in their book, October eighteen sixty. The Belvedere and the Truro crossing the Indian Ocean, heading for Port Natal. The ship, the medium of mercantile capitalism and of the middle passage of indenture, was the first of the cultural units in which social relations were recited, and indenture was the first of cultural units in which social relations were recited and renegotiated. Hierarchies imagined into being over a long period, divisions based on age-old customs, castes, religions, dialects, centuries in the making, unraveling, space, place and time compressed, recent acquaintances beckoned possibilities of intimacy. Many of the indentured will return burdened by the past. Others will embrace the new, relieved of the personal and not-so-personal forces of history. But already we hurry Shiva's dance. Now, I'm interested. It would appear as though that the majority of the people that are cited here believed in Shiva, correct? Yes, true, correct. Okay, so the, this, these people were people of uh, uh, Hindu faith. Yes, uh, if my memory serves me correct, and I, can, I can give you some figures. On the true row, there were 200 plus Hindus, uh, just under 100 Christians, uh, 20-odd Muslims. And I think the total number was 340-something. Uh, on the Belvedere, there were about 40-odd Muslims, no Christians, and the, and the rest of them were all Hindus. So that gave you an idea that the majority of the people that came out here were, in fact, Hindus. Yeah, yeah. And and what were the relations among them at the time, the relationships between the people of different castes squashed well, the together in these ships was, yeah, and the people faiths and so one, forth? Yeah, it was very strong. It was one of brotherhood and sisterhood. You know, they they regarded themselves as families. That's how they were. That's how they were. They came out here and they lived out here and worked together as families. 
Okay. All right. So I- even though back home they were not as brotherly one toward the other, uh, but you're suggesting that when they got into the Belvedere and the Truro, these two ships changed their mindset and the spirit of brotherhood was brewed in those ships. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Why? 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 How did that happen? Because it, 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 when you look at history of the Indians in India, even long before there was the separation of India and Pakistan, you'd learn that they had never had this brotherhood. What fostered this brotherhood in the Trudeau and the Belvedere? But it still, it still exists. I mean, I think myself, and I'm a third-generation uh, Indian in South Africa, uh, I grew up in, in the so-called uh, Gray Street area. And the Gray Street area is, is the area where the majority of Indians lived in, in, in Durban. And all of us, uh, Hindus, Muslims, Christians, all of us lived as one big family. You know, we quite often reminisce about how in Gray Street, if there was a, a, a wedding taking place in somebody's family, whether it was Muslim, Hindu, or otherwise, or Christian, it didn't matter. All of us were automatically invited. All of us were automatically assisting. All of us were automatically involved in the celebrations and the fun fair and everything else. You just, you know, nobody went out giving out cards to people, invitation yeah. cards like we do today. Yeah, yeah. So there was this brotherhood of togetherness as a one big family. Okay. And, you know, there wasn't this, this, this distinction that's sometimes perceived as being existent. I can tell you from my own example that that's not true. Okay, all right. Um, I want to take some more calls for you before we even go back. Um, let's go to Anonymous in Mpumalanga. Good evening, Anonymous. Good evening. How are you? Well, thank you, Anonymous. Great. Uh, I want to ask a question to the guest. Okay. Uh, yes. Uh, since he refers to himself as a, as a South African, my question is, if I, as an African native, go to India, gain citizenship in India with my wife, give birth to, to our children there, they give birth to their children, will a third generation or our children be called Indian in India, since he refers to himself as a, as a South African in South Africa? Will we ever be called Indians? All right. Can we can you just distinguish before we continue there? Um, uh, when when you identify a South African and an Indian, are you referring to uh, the matter of uh, uh, genes or the matter of nationality? Because the matter of nationality is, is a foregone conclusion that any and everyone who is a citizen in that place is called uh, according to that nation. So South Africans here, whether they are white, black, or they are all called South Africans, uh, at least as far as their ident- ID document is concerned, it's South African ID. And, and an, an Indian ID, and an American, and a British, and a Chinese ID. So, as far as uh, Home Affairs Departments of the various nationalities, they would address those people or identify those people as uh, people of that nation, uh, South African, uh, British, or Indian. So, my question to you, Anonymous, is, are you referring to genetic pedigree, or are you referring to uh, national identity? Okay. Uh, that question wasn't poised to the guest. I understand. I understand he's going to respond. I need to understand. 
I, I understand your question and I think he understands your question as well. I'm just curious before I let you go, what exactly it is that you would like uh, to, to, to be clarified? Are you cl trying to clarify matters of genealogy or are you trying to clarify matters of national identity? Okay. I'm asking a simple question like you asked the guest. He answered and uh, there was no questions about genes or national identity. You let him answer. And so I thought you'd let him answer again. So you, now, you you don't you don't want to answer anonymously? Okay, that's all right. Okay, you don't want to answer. Yeah. It's all right. All right. We'll, we'll have a match. All right. Thank you very Thank much, you. anonymous. Um, Ashwin, would you like to respond? Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> you quickly pointed out to him. I think people get confused, and and uh, it's uh, you know it's a pity that uh, anonymous is not online. But why why make this an issue? because we're talking about Indians. Because remember, in South Africa, they are whites. And when we talk about whites, we talk about the, the old world Europeans. And they are British descent people in South Africa who are South Africans today. And they are part of South African society. And yet their ancestors, like us Indians, like my ancestors were from India, their ancestors were from the UK. Uh, that does that, that, that doesn't mean that if if anonymous goes to the United Kingdom and decides to settle there and then applies to be a British citizen, that he is no longer going to be called British. Of course, he will be called British, as you pointed out. So, if anonymous decides to take his family and go and become an immigrant and live in India and wants to become a citizen of the, of of India, then he would be an Indian. Uh, with an African descent. That's as simple as that. Okay. All right. I'm going to take a break. We're going to come back. I'm going to take more of your calls. Mjali, if I can see you, Mr. Mlambo, all of you guys, I can see you. Just allow me to take a break and come back. Stand by. Welcome back, and thank you very much for sticking around. You're still listening to The Hidden Space. We're taking your calls. Ashram, I'm hoping you're going to write these down. We're going to go straight to Mr. Mlambo in Fanda Bale Park. Mr. Mlambo, good evening. Hello. Good evening. How are you now? Well, thank you, sir. How are you? Oh, okay, fine. Okay, right. Uh, now, I just want to ask your guest there to say, okay, right, it seems as if they are still having all those privileges of apartheid because now they are being called Indians. And you may find some of Indian origins. They are even so much darker than Africans, but they are not even called blacks. Even when you feel a form, you can find a form here, it says an Indian, an Asian, a European, but they're black. So now, why are we having this color, color bar? I mean, they themselves, uh, are they still having those, I mean, be, I mean enjoying the, because they are not even called black. They are, I mean, they are not even called by the color of the skin, but they are called by the origin of the continent or the country where they come from so when it is said to them an indian and they and they, somebody next to them is called a black and now when you look at all right mr mlambo was hoping you'd make your point there but i think i got some part of it uh, actually i'm hoping you're writing this down i'm going to move on to mujalifa and kron's start mujalifa good evening yes good evening and i and uh and your guest mm. Uh, uh, just uh, for clarification from what I earlier on had your guest say, and I think I had him quite correctly, uh, uh, in one of the responses, he, he started by saying uh, my, my perspective on history. 
And then he goes on. And then later on, he would say, I, you would read somewhere, and then he would say, I agree with that. Understanding that, it gives me an understanding that he kind of comes with a constructive uh, uh, or constructivist uh, idea or perspective on, on history. So that, but then I wonder where would be his uh, sources from, for which or upon which then he can clearly say my perspective. Okay, all right, Mujalifa. I don't know if that's clear. It's very clear. Because I found <laughs> that very, very interesting to for someone to say of of history, I mean of our uh, my contemporary to say that my perspective on history when we are talking about 1800s or even 1900s. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that, 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 that's one. But then I, I also, I would like him to help me. Perhaps in South Africa, it's quite different from uh, India. I haven't been in India, but I've worked with uh, uh, first generation Indians uh, in different other countries and of different um, uh, religions and, uh, shall I say, castes. Uh, so I know, for example, that... Uh, the, the the untouchables, if I may call so, if I may call them the, uh, like that, in India, they are still the very lowest in that caste system, and then you have the the the, the priest, uh, uh, the the, the Brahmites, and I think among, among the the Hindus. So I he, from what I hear him to be saying is that, and this is very contrary to my understanding of these relationships among different uh, uh, groupings of Indians. And I would even go to an extent uh, to as far as saying, even here in South Africa, I would imagine it's still so. For example, is he therefore then suggesting that here in South Africa, as someone who comes from the very lowest uh, of that uh, system, can in fact marry within the, the Brahmites? And uh, I mean, that's, I find it very difficult to to understand that to be the case. So I would like his clarification on that. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mujalif. Appreciate your goals. Yeah, Daniel and Durban. Good evening, Daniel. Daniel, good evening. Good evening, sir. Good evening, sir. Yes. Thanks for taking my call. Go ahead, Daniel. Uh, firstly, as far as the uh, Indian South Africans are concerned, I am proud to be a South African. I'm born in South Africa. I'm a South African. Uh, to India, I am a foreigner. Just like a person born in Zimbabwe comes into South Africa, we say they are foreigners. So we are South Africans because we born here. Just as the previous government has classified us as Indians, and that title is still there. As Nelson Mandela said, this is a rainbow nation, so we should all be classified as South Africans and not as black, white, Indian, colored, or whatever other racial barriers there are. Yeah. Uh, secondly, I'd like to ask your guest, you know, I watched a movie, South African movie called White Diamond. It shows you the struggles and the hardships and what the Indians went through. They didn't have a easy life. They were real slaves. And I don't think the rest of the South Africans know the hardships that the Indians went through, especially our forefathers. I would like him to highlight some of those incidents as well, if he can, if he's got time. All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much, Daniel. Appreciate your call. We've got three minutes, actually two and a half minutes, Ashwin. Don't know that it'll be fair time for you to respond to all of them, but you can try. Go ahead. Let me answer the question on caste. It's a very the easiest one to answer. Okay. There is no caste classification or caste system in South Africa. So while he refers to his his understanding, and he didn't, obviously he doesn't know 
He hasn't been to India and that he spoke about untouchables and so on. So first of all, there's no such thing as untouchables in South Africa. And secondly, amongst the Indian community, there is no such thing as a caste system. Uh, people marry across uh, across the religious sector as well, let alone now uh, Hindu marrying Muslim or Hindu marrying a Christian or Christian getting married to a Muslim. This happens every day. So there is no such segregation or some kind of division. In South Africa, we are what we are. We are South Africans, and I think we must emphasize that. The fact, like as the last, uh, the last caller said, the fact that I am classified as an Indian is not my, do- my doing. It's a doing of the government. The government says every form that you want to fill in, they want to ask, are you an Indian, African, uh, white, colored? Those questions are asked by the authorities, not by us. It's created by the administration in this country. And the, the first one about me agreeing uh, with history, yes, of course, and I think I, I, I pointed out to you at the very beginning, when you referred to the authors, uh, Ashwin Desai and Ghulam Vaid, whom I know personally extremely well, and with whom I worked together in, 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 when they were doing the historical uh, investigations, I agree with everything that's in that book. So I have I have my views, but but when it comes to the historical factual information that they have in the book, I agree with it completely. And I, I think on that point there, that. I think on that point there was trying to establish that you you that there were points in your responses where he picked up a sense of revisionism where you would say your perspective, and yet it is not supposed to be your perspective. History is supposed to be no one's perspective. It's not supposed to be subjective. So according to him, he picked up a sense of revisionism where you would give a perspective and not the actual uh, history, and then there will be parts where you say yes I agree with this implying that you're here to present a particular perspective of history and not history in its entirety in its objective well, it's pretty, factuality yeah, it's a pity that it came across it wasn't intended to be I, I understand I totally understand but, uh, that's yeah. the point he was making unfortunately our time is up Ashwin Trickamji thank you very much as ever we always appreciate your insights and you coming through to talk to us thank you very much for your time and thank you for having me on the show thank you sir Ashwin Trickamji is the president of the Hindu Mahasabha talking to us tonight uh about history, not religion. We usually talk to him on facts of faith, on matters pertaining to faith. We really appreciate his time. It's 11 o'clock. It's time for the final bulletin for today with Stephen Kirker.